Yesterday I spoke at length about moment-to-moment morality in the world as we know it today. The common theme is moment-to-moment pleasure. The Buddha was very wise, and he recognized that the mind will suffer without pleasure. And he provided a way of discovering pleasure that is wholesome, that leads to awakening, that leads to true happiness rather than to artificial happiness or delusion. In our ways of seeking pleasure, we make choices and we grasp for things that only give very temporary, very insubstantial pleasure. And then we experience the disappointment, the loss, the stress of having tried and it only works for a short time. Inevitably, we do not find a pleasure that truly satiates the craving in the mind, the craving for that which is completely fulfilling, indestructible happiness. And so we experience suffering. One of the protections we have is the ability to scan our life, review. What are we doing? What is the result of all our effort? What are we pursuing? And when we can look carefully and wisely, and if we use these as our standards, generosity, virtue, mindfulness, compassion, and wisdom, then we introduce what the Buddha calls hiri otapa. Hiri, regret, remorse, feeling moral shame or compunction. We look back and see, I have caused harm. I have harmed someone else. I have harmed myself. Then, if we feel shame in the wake of that, this can goad us. This can inspire us. This can fortify us to do better and to develop otapa, moral fear, moral restraint. This is how the way develops. So, moral shame is a very useful and a very precise standard because it has a moral component. We can look at the causes of our action, the causes of our choices, the kama that we make. What are we aiming for? What is our aspiration? And the results in terms of a moral barometer. And because it can be so powerful in the heart, especially for a meditator, we are opening our hearts, sensitizing ourselves to a great refinement of virtue, physical, speech conduct, virtue, and mental, mind development, virtue. So these are the virtues of the path. They're the foundations. 
the ground of the path. This review of our life that has a moral component gives us power. It gives us a great ability, a strength, an instrument. And it's the instrument of the mind. We can apply this instrument and measure. Aha! There is a feeling of constriction in the heart when we remember something we've done that caused harm. And that's painful. It's a piercing pain. We don't want to experience that. Some people can go mad from regret, feeling the pain of what they've done. When we are witness to violence around us, and we feel compassion for those who have been the victims of violence, ourselves or others, then if we think about the suffering that will inevitably come to the person or persons inflicting that violence, someday they look at their lives and see the terror they've inflicted or the harm they've inflicted. They will experience the inevitable results of that. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to feel compassion. And we may resist that, but that's due to our own lack of understanding of the law of karma. But in terms of our own uplift, step-by-step, breath-by-breath on the path, insight-by-insight, it bodes well when we have feelings of moral regret, remorse about deeds, misdeeds, breaking of precepts, wrong intentions, wrong choices, then we have to set our minds on a course that doesn't repeat those acts. So it's not enough just to feel moral shame about our misdeeds, but it's very important for us also to direct our minds well for whatever we engage with in the future. There's always retrospect. Oh, if only I had... If only. We have to also be compassionate for ourselves because we're students of the Dhamma. And sometimes it takes a couple of times before we get the message that we are actually moral beings. To be true to ourselves, to our humanity, we want to bring to life and really embody this purity, this morality, in the best possible way. I cannot stress enough the importance of sila on this path. Tisarana, the three refuges. Sarana is refuge. So if we take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then we are also bound to practice the other meaning of sarana, which is to wisely remember. Remember your refuge. Remember mindfulness. 
pay attention to the present moment. Give ear to the Dhamma. Put away our desires for pleasure of the world and seek for the pleasure of truth, which is so deeply satisfying that when we understand the reality of that and look back on how much effort and energy we spent pursuing different kinds of sports, collections, obsessions, possessions, we really wonder. As adults, we look back at our teenage years, perhaps, and think, what was I doing? And as we get older, in old age, we think, well, I wish I had become a nun when I was six. (laughs) Just to avoid somehow all the dangers of the world the dangers of gratification through the sense media. We have our own media here, five doors, five media doors. They're dangerous. How hard is it to control mental habits? Even the most innocuous habit of drinking Coke, you know, reaching for the Coca-Cola. It's really bad for us. I put in a plug. (laughs) It causes arthritis, you know. Worse than that, the sense gratification, we spend our energy on so many things. Even in the Hermitage, we have a lot of stuff. We realize that the world is so full of stuff, of objects. And instead of consummation, we're busy with consumption. We're running after materiality instead of morality. This is how easy it is for us to get swept away by desire, by craving. We haven't yet learned, we haven't understood how to truly be consummate in virtue rather than to consume whatever we can put into our bodies, our mouths, even our minds with information. Even after the request a few times, there was still a cell phone on its own going off, like completely abandoned in some pocket, couldn't be reached. We have so much that we can't even reach it all. We can't be responsible for it all. To reach for one goal, The Buddha is asking us to be masters of ourselves, self-mastery, to understand ourselves deeply. The Buddha teaches us to look with the eyes of wholeness, of love and compassion at ourselves, of joy and wisdom at ourselves, and see What have we been doing? How are we doing? And then we will feel that moral compunction, regret, and a moral understanding. That's taking moral responsibility for the next time. This is sila in a package. What will I do next time somebody speaks to me and I don't like it? What can I do? 
we can restrain these two lips. And then we have to restrain the mind also. Inevitably, we'll say something when we're not mindful. So we have to practice not using words that are harsh or cruel or abusive or false, deceitful or foolish. Speaking and acting in ways that are kind, gentle, generous, compassionate, forgiving, wise. We use otapa, restraining ourselves. That requires abandoning what is unwholesome and cultivating what is beautiful, what is gracious, what is good, what is benevolent. Therefore, to guard the mind, this is a practice of guarding the mind, guarding our speech door, our media doors, the sense media. How do we behave day after day, year after year? How do we develop? We try to be kind. We try to be forgiving. We try to be generous. We tried not to harm. So even the effort by itself is already a cultivation of the path. We may not succeed every time, but if we don't try, it's hopeless. So to see the connection between trusting the path, making the effort, mindfully applying our energy to it, working with concentrating ourselves in all of these domains with a moral aspiration underlying every nuance of our activity, mental and physical, and then receiving the fruit. And we look back and we feel a joy, we feel gratitude, we feel blessed. We live in grace. We still suffer. Physical suffering, mental suffering still happen. But we're constantly sowing blessings. And not everything in the field can be harvested. But we get enough. When I was first in India 43 years ago, I was taken home by a farming family and the farmer took me out to see the fields. And he said, in this field I'm growing lentils, and in this field I'm growing mustard, and in this field wheat or whatever else it was. And this section of my field is for the birds. What? <laughs> what did you? It's for the birds. In the West, we put up structures to scare the birds away. He was a farmer that was growing crops for the birds. And I was just so touched. What generosity. May all creatures eat from my land. Every time I got on a bus, if anyone on the bus had food of, of any sort, Usually it was wrapped up in some cloth. It wasn't as much plastic packaging. People would unwrap their little baked goodies or 
spoiled sweets and pass it around the whole bus. It was the most miraculous thing. I was never hungry. I often got sick from <laughs> But I was never hungry. So much generosity is cultural. I also learned that people, when they celebrated their birthdays, prepared gifts and gave them out to everyone. This is not just in India, it's in, I think it all over Asia. But certainly uh, when I was in Burma and Sayada Upandita had a birthday in the monastery, he was my preceptor. Everyone in the monastery got a present. Every single person, even the foreigners, the visitors, we got a toothbrush and a towel and some bit of sweet. These small acts of planned generosity, these are adornments of the mind. They're jewels. This is morality. The wellspring of morality comes from that kind of generosity. Looking out for each other, looking for the good of others, comes from a very good heart, very gentle, very caring, very mothering very fathering. So we have a lot to learn. We are students of a teaching that is benevolent and enlightened. So if we can pick up all these various aspects of it and really live a moment-to-moment -moment morality, then we won't care about the riches of the world, the successes of the world the pleasures of the world, because we will have understood and gained the greatest blessings. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. We all suffer to be separated from the loved and to have the company of those we don't like. That's just how it is. And then taking care of these bodies. How many times a day do we have to dust ourselves off, bathe the body, put on lotions, dry skin, flaky skin, dandruff. If you live in the country, there's ticks, there's rodents, there's mosquitoes. We have the heat and the cold and the oceans are rising and we have terrible droughts and floods and just living in this realm, it's just inevitable. And then we have dukkha of the mind, of the mental states, and of birth, old age, sickness, and death. And living in the world as human beings, we experience so much disappointment, so much loss. We gain things and then they disappear. What is there to hold on to in the world that is not suffering? But the Buddha showed us a way out. Even if all our family members stand around and tell us, don't suffer, that will not help us. But if we have developed a mind of purity, of gratitude, of contentment, of stillness, of wisdom, 
we will not fear even our last breath because that last breath is a doorway to Nibbana. Well, let's spread metta in all directions and try to bring up forgiveness in our hearts to anyone towards whom we feel ill will, anyone at all, including ourselves, to clear that and begin again, to forgive and understand that's an act of moral benefit. It's an act of purification to forgive. It's correct to use the shame in a way that leads to forgiveness, loving kindness, compassion, and then joy, equanimity, nibbana. This is called moral reckoning. And it begins with that seed, little tiny seed that we plant of forgiveness in the heart. And it leads to great, immeasurable, boundless loving-kindness, great, immeasurable, boundless compassion, boundless. It's not like, oh, well, only towards so-and-so, but it's to all, all beings, even scorpions, even terrorists. Great and unconditional and measurable empathy and joy, gladness. Great, boundless, immeasurable, exalted equanimity in our own hearts and towards all conditions everywhere. We have to do it.